Father, thank you for being our God and the, the great resources we have in you. Um, help us to access these, to uh, be awakened to your glorious promises to us. Uh, help me to preach, Lord, uh, as, as, as if someone rose from the dead, which is true. Uh, and Father, uh, help us to not be uh, weighed down. If we are weighed down, may we um, find ourselves interacting with you, um, finding you present with us. Um, and I do pray for those who are struggling um, for something that is weighing them down, something heavy on their hearts. I pray that you will be the lifter of their heads and um, give them boldness and give them joy. Uh, thank you for this moment uh, before your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, um, the book of Acts. Um, it's an amazing narrative. Uh, Dr. Luke uh, wrote two volumes. He wrote his first volume, which is titled Luke, and the second volume is the book of Acts, which is the early history of the church. We are looking at the days just following the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus into heaven, and what happens in Jerusalem, and how do the apostles obey, and uh, how do they take this gospel message out to, to the world? So uh, it's a pretty exciting book, um, and uh, we're, we're exploring this book uh, as, as Sundays go along here. Most of you are, um, are familiar with the book of James. It's a small little epistle toward the end of your New Testament, the book of James. And the book of James starts off uh, with uh, these four words. After James introduces his ideas or his, his book, he then says, consider it all what? Joy, yeah. Consider it all joy when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result that you would be not lacking in anything, but you would be mature. That's, that's James chapter 1, verses, verse 3 and following. Uh, count it all joy. Those four words sort of rock me every time I hear them. Count it all joy. When you encounter various trials, is, is that your response to, to trials? Are, are you just happy inside? Yeah, they're, they're, they're like a bucket of cold water. Uh, count it all joy. This is a remarkable passage in the Bible. Uh, these apostles, and we think it's all of them, even though Peter's the spokesperson often, uh, they are brought once again before the Sanhedrin, this ruling council Jerusalem, some 70 elders and Sadducees and Pharisees, and, and these are the, the church, excuse me, the, 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 the city fathers, I should say. And so they are those who settle disputes among people, and they brought the apostles in because the apostles had an escape out of prison via an angel, and the apostles go right back to preaching in front of the temple. Uh, they've already been threatened to, uh, by this council to not do this, and they are under the command of God to do this, and they do it again. And they are called back one more time, 
And they are brought before this council. And uh, Peter shares a short mini-sermon why they will not yield to the authority of men in this regard. They must obey God rather than men. And then one one of their wise leaders stands up and counsels them, be careful, don't kill these guys. You may be resisting God. And he reminds them, remember, we've had these movements before, and when the leader dies, when the leader dies, then the movement dies out. That's his counsel. So we've seen these uprisings before. The leader dies, and then the movement disperses. So Gamaliel, the the Pharisee, says, you might want to back off killing these guys because you could be resisting God. So this is the text, and then what they do is they beat them. They flog them. Uh, It's painful. They beat them in order to shame them, in order to impose their will on these men. And then there is this sort of postlude or this summary statement toward the end of chapter 5 where Luke records their reflection on this whole experience. Now, I am sure that I would have gone right into self-pity. Jesus, I'm trying to serve you. Look where it leads me. See? Um, I would have gone right into self-pity. They respond that they considered it joy and a privilege to have suffered for Jesus. They left the presence of the council, verse 41, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Uh, you want to talk about suffering today for a while? You want to talk about difficulties, trials? And then how on earth, what, I mean, what, do, what has to happen inside of a person to disregard something painful and to not let it get to them where they don't become bitter? Um, see, Acts by itself tells us enough of what they are likely already thinking. And we know more than Acts 5 about what Jesus taught them and about what Jesus did. And so the idea that they would suffer is not a shock to their system, and it seems to be something that, while it's painful, and while it, 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 it was an attempt at shaming them, it didn't work. And they went right back preaching and instructing the people about Jesus, knowing that that activity is a dangerous activity in Jerusalem at this time. What a power 
that must be functioning inside these apostles. What a power that overcomes the temptation to self-pity. What a power that must be operating in them uh, of boldness. Peter preaching to these individuals. Reminding them that they did not esteem Jesus and they treated him as a criminal and put him on a cross. But God's esteem of Jesus was much different. He rose him from the dead and ascended him and exalted him at the right hand of the Father. That's what God's esteem of Jesus was. And what was your esteem? How far you are from the heart of God. How far you are from the purposes of God. You just don't tell the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem this. Peter did. And there's a comment in Acts chapter 4 that the first first observation that the Sanhedrin had of these apostles was that they were uneducated men, but they sure are acting as if they've been with Jesus. And what is that quality of having been with Jesus? Boldness. Boldness. So they disregard the pain. Uh, They are unafraid to speak. They've been told not to speak. And so we are observing power enfleshed, power embodied in these apostles. And what's interesting about the text is that at this moment, the Sanhedrin just kind of fade away. I like how, I like how Acts 5 ends because it's like, ah, flogging, oh, terrible. Uh, they're back at it again. The Sanhedrin have their moment, but then they just sort of fade away. How do we get to the deep motivations of these apostles? How do we get to understand them? How do we connect with them? Um, all of us have been around, um, heard of, been close to uh, a death, um, perhaps an accident, a car accident. We're scratching our heads. We are wondering what on earth was the purpose of that. Someone we love, someone we cared about has, has passed away. I'm thinking a lot of us have had that experience, perhaps. And so there, there's sort of this loss of meaning, right? But then there's the death that has a lot of meaning. You in the military, you're very close to this. I've seen movies, documentaries on this uh, where a buddy in the military um, gives his life for a friend, uh, steps in the way, shields someone, and in that act of shielding them, dies. And it certainly is a difficult thing to experience and to learn about, but one is one is sort of easier to take or at least easier to, to understand, and it's packed with, with meaning, isn't it? It's packed with meaning. And that meaning remains in you for a long time 
the value of that individual's life and the virtues that you see, their self-giving, their willingness to give what is most precious to someone else that they might live, right? So that meaning is, is it sustains us, right? You see, there's got to be something in these apostles that is far more deep in its meaning than just obeying some religious authorities. That the deep meaning has to connect at this deep, deep level in their souls in which what I have experienced, what I know, what I have seen, what I have handled, what I have touched, my experience, my awareness, my knowledge can't be denied. I am now entering into the deepest possible meaning between God and myself, and it cannot be denied. These apostles were first-hand eyewitnesses to the glory of Jesus. The glory of Jesus. They saw him James, Peter, and John saw him in the transfiguration, Luke 17. But that was a precursor of what was to come. They saw him rise on Easter morning glory, and they were instructed for 40 days. And in Acts chapter 1, they saw him ascend into glory. And they, based on their instruction, they understood what Jesus had accomplished in his coming. And it was glorious. It was tapping into the deep, deep meaning that transcends even the Sanhedrin's commands. The deep, deep meaning that they are now connected to is motivating them. Second Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3. The Apostle Paul says these words. He says, We comfort you, we comfort others, with the comfort that we have been comforted with. So as a minister of the gospel, the Apostle Paul comforted people who were in affliction with the comfort that he had been given in the gospel. Translate that, move that over to Acts 5. The comfort that the apostles had been given, the peace, the security, the well-being, was functioning in them such that the beating itself had no effect upon them. They were being comforted with a greater, deeper meaning. Now, what did Jesus accomplish? Now, that's a huge subject. But do you know that as we gather this morning, the world is troubled. It has been troubled for a long time. The world is in agony. Romans 8 tells us that the creation itself is groaning. 
let alone what's happening in our major cities, that the human condition is one of radical alienation from God, from others, and from ourselves. And we are seeing this played out regularly. Those flash bulletins you get. I recently signed up for a, a news service and, uh, so that they could you know, send me n- news updates on my laptop. Huge big mistake. <laughs> like I, I stopped that right away. Couldn't get anything done. The world's in woe. The world's in trouble. The world reflects God's beauty and extraordinary. I mean, you look at the, you know, a beautiful painting and, and the reflections of, of the image of God in man, and you still see many, many remains of that. The world is troubled. And I'm looking at these disciples, I'm looking at these followers of Jesus, and I am like, what's going on? What is what's happening inside them that they are they are unaffected by this affliction? Obviously it was painful. They move on and go right back to the danger place. So let me give you a few ideas of what might have been entering in their minds. Jesus, on the way to the cross, said, I am making all things new. The prophet Isaiah gives us beautiful pictures of what Jesus has begun. A new creation is underway. A new heaven and a new earth is underway. There's been a new exodus through Jesus, the final Moses, delivered out of the house of slavery, not Egypt, but sin. The final Moses has come. The old temple served its day, but the stones and the mortar and all that held it together don't do anything anymore. The temple's been replaced. A new temple, the very body of Jesus, I am the way, the truth, and the life, has been established. Think with me, what was in the mind of these apostles who had to say these words? Listen to the bottom line. They had to say these words. They have to say the words of the gospel. They have to get out in front of the temple and they have to speak and preach this life They have to. What's going on inside them? Their need structure has completely changed. Do you ever get the feeling, I do, when I'm reading the the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, you know, the disciples are always on like a time clock. Have you ever get that feel? Like, you know what I mean? Like they're hanging out with the people, Jesus feeding them, da-da-da. And then somebody, I didn't have watches, but somebody, it's almost like they're like, Okay, it's midnight. Can, can you send these people away? I mean, I, I've done my time, right? Have you ever get, do you ever get that feel from the disciples? You read, read it very carefully. You see this. It's, it's right there. They, they're kind of like putting up with people. And Jesus seems to love them. Okay, we'll fo- all right, we'll follow. Sure. But they're really rather irritated with people. 
they're really short-tempered, uh, and they, do, they, just, they just don't like people. That's my impression. It's very interesting, isn't it? Why would they go out there and preach again about Jesus? I believe their need structure is completely changed. This means they are now understanding that the gospel compels them to love people. People in their paradigm before were, were instruments to be used. So, for instance, yeah, you've you got a role. Sure, uh, eat, eat the food Jesus makes and listen to him. Great, that's your role. Now, okay, you're done. Go, go away. Your role is over now. Your, your functionality, you now no longer serve my needs, right? You're an, irrit- you're, you're an irritant to me. So, go away, right? Now... They can't wait to be with people. What on earth happened? We're tapping in to the paradigm-changing structure that the cross does for our needs. Here's what I do with my needs. You know, Marianne should probably take over the pulpit now. Here's what I do. Here's here's what I do with my needs. Okay. Doesn't need sound great? A need, you know. All this psychologist, Abraham Maslow, and, you know, Carl Jung, and all this, your needs. These, all of our needs are legitimate, by the way. Every impulse of the heart, legitimate, right? Well, I translate my needs into demands. They don't come across as just Todd needs this. It's sort of this demanding spirit, Right? The total paradigm of their need structure has changed. They have adopted by God's sheer grace, empowered by his spirit, they've adopted the same spirit that was in Jesus. Jesus was willing to give himself and put himself in risky situations for the glory of the Father, and for the love of people. And guess what we see in the apostles? That same kind of spirit. And the one who was really afraid of dying, Peter, is finally catching on. They're going to kill me, aren't they, Jesus? Yes, they are, Peter. Get over it. Okay. Got to read this book. When people are big and God is small, page 173, whatever you think you need will control you. Now, on this day, if some religious leaders are going to beat me, I'll tell you what my needs are. I want them to be beaten. That's my need, see? That's my twisted need world. I want them to be inflicted with pain. Isn't that it? There's nothing, by the way, remarkable about that response. There's nothing supernatural about that. And you don't need a cross to to respond with vengeance, right? You don't need Jesus to respond with vengeance. Meaning you, you do this on your own power. But their need structure was completely changed. Whatever you think you need will control you, Ed Welch says. If you need something from other people... And here it is. This is so contrary 
to Oprah. If you need something from other people, love, acceptance, approval, they hold the key to something very valuable to you. And you will live in fear that they may not deliver. Page 179. So, do the apostles need the Sanhedrin's approval? The answer is no. Oh, do they respect the Sanhedrin at some level? I hope so. But they don't need them. They're not demanding that the Sanhedrin behave in a certain way. Because God's behavior to them is so extraordinary. God's behavior is overshadowing this behavior. It doesn't minimize the sinfulness of it, but it is remarkable that they are not touched by this at the level the Sanhedrin wants them to be. Since they are right back to preaching and instructing people, I would suggest that what rules their hearts is love for people. And folks, this has been used often in the pulpit. I think it's the first time I've ever done it, but I think it, it, it certainly works. You've all heard this idea that if someone does d- discover the cure for cancer, and they really have tested it in a laboratory, they really have tested it on people, and it really, really, really does cure cancer, you know that that lab, that hospital, would be broadcasting it. And they would be broadcasting it with great urgency. Every day matters for people who are suffering from that affliction. Every day. And if they genuinely had the cure, the cure they would be zealot for it. They would be zealous for it. Zealot for it. Z- zealous for it, right? You know that, right? The discovery of the cure for cancer would f- far outweigh skepticism, criticism, some medical journal that calls them quacks. What controls the apostles' hearts is the grace-given vision of the glory of Jesus because God desires to cure us of our sin sickness. This is the cure that defeats death, folks. Anybody interested? That's pretty, that's pretty significant, isn't it? This is the cure that, that fixes every single thing that is wrong in our experience in this world. He has been exalted, and he's at the right hand of the Father, and a time has been appointed where he will judge the world. By the way, there was a Croatian pastor when, when the Serbians and the, the Croatians were killing each other. Do you remember that back in the 90s? And one village would attack another, and then they'd wait a year, and then the next village would attack them, right? The Muslims versus the Bosnian Christians and all that. One, one Croatian pastor called the village together and said this, we're going to have to take it. And we will wait for Judgment Day. The cycle of vengeance has to stop. The disciples are sinned against here. And they take it and they wait for judgment day. A time of refreshing 
is to be preached about through the forgiveness of sins. There really is someone on a glorious throne, and they are witnesses to his glory. Now, the bottom line application for us, and then I'm done. The bottom line application for us is this. There is a glorious something about Jesus that can't be held down, can't be resisted. There's something glorious about Jesus. Let me ask you, when was the last time you thought of something glorious about Jesus? Glorious about him, where it warmed your heart, it diminished, diminished something that you were experiencing, it comforted you in your affliction. God is concerned that you would be comforted in your affliction. I'm going to suggest that fear controls many a Christian heart. We are afraid that we will not be cared for. We're afraid that our needs will not be met. We're afraid that we will not be loved. We're afraid. And in this whole world of fears, I would suggest to you that there is a world of things that we treasure and a world of idols. Beneath the word need can also be something that we are worshiping. Do you know that Paul actually tells Timothy to join him in suffering? Why does he tell a young disciple to join him in suffering? (laughs) Because Timothy didn't want to join Paul in suffering. We might call that a rather normal response. Second Timothy 1.8, and then I'm done. Why join Paul in suffering? And here's what Paul tells Timothy. He tells him that grace was given to, to him. This grace was given to us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but now has been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus. That's what the apostles were thinking. The grace of God had been revealed in the appearing of Jesus. They knew what it meant. The whole of God's plan of salvation embodied in the person of Jesus it, it, it happened. He died. He rose again. He ascended into glory. It's true. The new heavens and earth are, earth are coming. The new temple is here. The day of judgment, when all injustice will be taken care of, that's coming. We now have access to God, His very throne through Jesus. All the old structures are gone. This message of salvation is like the cure for cancer. And what is our trouble, folks? Our trouble is we have not participated or sought out the glory of these ideas. These are glorious, paradigm-changing, restructuring your needs, theology that really does make a practical difference in our afflictions, and we are going through difficulties. And the church is here to provide the means of grace 
preaching, Lord's Supper, fellowship, prayer, in order to help you rediscover the glories of God that we so often forget. So we don't all get this in one sermon. We don't all get this in one worship service. We don't all understand all these things. That's why we have life together. May God richly bless us as we think about these glorious truths that have been revealed to us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time that we've been able to think about what was